0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. How do you feel when somebody tells you you need to obey? And put the spiritual stuff aside, how do you really feel when somebody tells you that you need to obey? You know, this reminds me of a couple of things. Number one, we're Americans, right? America, we don't, we don't obey nobody, right? What do we do? We rebel, how do you feel about kings? No, no kings, no kings, go away. We do what we want, you know, especially in our modern times, uh, modern American culture, I don't know what you've observed, but this is what I've observed, we, we have this deep value of being independent, autonomous, free, and the only one who can tell me what's right for me, guess who that is? That's me. And so we're told it in every commercial, we're told it politically, that what, what you feel, what you want, what you're oriented to, well, that's what you should do. And if anybody wants to get in your way, run over them. Right? You're free, you, you, you don't obey. Right, you're free. And so even if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian all your life, you live in this country, this culture, it can't help but rub off on you. Somebody says, obey, and you're like, no. I'm a rebel, right? We don't obey. So now we need to be honest about the contrast. Honest about the contrast. The Bible's not shy about it. The Apostle Paul's not shy about it. The Christian life is one of total submission and obedience. The Christian life is one of total submission and obedience. Um, You can't say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is what? Lord, and then say, but I don't obey. Because in the title Lord, what does that mean? I obey. He's my Lord. I obey him. So let's just consider the kind of obedience we're talking about here. Did you see it in, where is it? Verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Read, that, read the rest of that verse with me, will you? Starting from the word and. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. One more time. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Walk through it with me, every. What does that mean? <laughs> every. The whole thing, so it's comprehensive, right? Totally comprehensive, every. Then what was the next word? Thought. Gosh, it's one thing. How many of you are kind of on the track of like a couple times a week obedience? (laughs) Couple places in my life obedience. I'm down for that. Every, and then he goes thought. So we've totally left the arena of like external stuff. I didn't just obey, okay, so... Here we, here we are, we're at church. Is that a command of God to be a part of a local church? Yeah, it is. And you could obey. And then you could say, hey, I obeyed God. I made it to church. And then we, then we hear this word, thought. So by the way, it's wonderful that you came to church. I'm so happy that you're here. But now Jesus, now Jesus is after what you're thinking about while you're at church, which just made church totally different than just going to church. He wants how you think about everything. If this is true, if this is the the nature of the obedience, I mean, if he has your thoughts, if you're you're at the place where you want your thoughts to please him, he has your heart, he has what you love most, and he has just um, the very intimate inner workings of yourself, right, are belonging to him. So what kind of obedience is this? Um, it's hard to come up with a word. It's, it's everything. It's your deepest self belonging to him. Every thought captured or captive to Christ to where, to where the obedience we're looking for is our, our emotions, our assumptions, our considerations, our responses, that our goal with every piece of that would please Jesus because he's our Lord that's something right there, isn't it? That is something. So what are we supposed to do with this? Um, how many of you have made it to this level so far? Good, good, um, not close. So we, so that means how many of us in here need this? Okay, we've all got, as Paul would say in this language, strongholds, um, and if, if you're like, I don't have a stronghold, do you always obey? No. Do you have a stronghold? Yes. Places in our lives where, mm, or times in our lives where, mm, it doesn't belong to Christ. So our sermon series, we've been going through 2 Corinthians for a long time now, we're calling it Of Good Courage. What's courage? Strength to do what's hard. Strength to do what's hard. And is there anything harder than this? Full obedience to Jesus Christ. I think we each have areas where we're quicker to obey in certain areas of our lives than other, right? For some of us, you're better at obeying in this, maybe I'm better at obeying in that, but for each of us, we have places where obedience, we're like, mm, I don't know, and so what do we need? We need need courage, we need a convincing um, to take, it feels like a risk to take the risk on just having a wholehearted zeal for obedience in every single aspect. So, little background. As far as how 2 Corinthians works, when you reach chapter 10, you kind of reach the main event of the letter. Chapters 10 to 13 are all about a battle for the heart and soul of the Corinthian church. Uh, let me give you a picture of that in these verses from chapter 11. Look with me, chapter, 2 Corinthians 11:2 2 to 4. I'm going to hear, hear Paul's heart in this section, see what he's after in these chapters. So uh, chapter 11, verse 2, Paul writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the, from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So what's Paul's concern? What does he want so deeply for this church? Total devotion to Jesus, right? Total devotion. And what does he fear regarding their hearts, their devotion? Well, he uses the, the image of marriage here, doesn't he? You're supposed to be totally devoted to your husband who's Christ, you're flirting. You're flirting. False teachers, false gospels, bad kings. You're flirting. And Paul says, I feel jealous for you. He planted the church, he, he cares so deeply that they love Jesus with everything about them. And he's, and he's, he's worried or concerned that they don't. And so he's writing to, to challenge it and to encourage, right, total devotion and obedience to Jesus. So like I said, this is a discussion um, that lasts From chapters 10 to 13, one big argument on kind of the same thing. We're just gonna gonna grab the first six verses today and see what we can find there. And I think here's two ideas um, I want you to hang on to that I think we can learn from this morning. Number one, courage to obey, why? Realizing who Jesus is and what he deserves from us. Courage to obey, realizing again who Jesus is and what he deserves from us. And then two, the way to obey, how to obey, a tr- trusting the apostle. Trusting the apostle and the way we do that today, obviously Paul can't come and preach, that would be rad. Um, but the way we do that today is to trust the scriptures. Trust the scriptures. So the courage to obey is gonna come from seeing again who Jesus is and what he deserves from us, and then the second is Trusting the apostle in this context, trusting the scriptures. So let's begin, first of all, with Jesus. Look at verse one. What's his, uh, what's he coming at with him first? I, Paul, myself, entreat you. So what's entreat mean? Plead, um, really argue for, present a case for. I entreat you by the what? the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So who already is framing the discussion? Christ, his attitude, his heart. Then, of course, we saw it in verse five. We want our obedience to be so comprehensive that we take every thought captive to obey who? Christ. So whose shadow is over this entire thing? Jesus, specifically his title, Christ, Christ. Let's back up for a moment, think about obedience. I know we don't like obedience, but even in this culture, aren't there some places where we're softer towards it? Uh, If you're an elite athlete, you're a member of a team, who do you need to obey? Your coach. Almost everybody buys into this. Why do you need to obey your coach? It's for your good, right? He's got something to offer you. If we work together, if we listen to his tips, his, his training, we can win, we can improve, we can do better. So already, what's this common ground we have in this, in this culture? At least obey sometimes. Why? For your good. And uh, do you owe something to your coach, sort of? In a realm, in a way of thinking? He's invested, he's devoted, he's given you his time, his effort, so you you, you owe his you time. You owe him trust, allegiance. What about a police officer? Is that another way we should obey, at least sometimes? Right? Why should you obey the local police, generally speaking? Safety, and you don't have to go to jail. <laughs> uh, the, the social order, right? About, we, we, can only, we shouldn't go that fast. We can't just take other people's stuff. There needs to be a social order, and isn't this for our good if the police are doing their job and we're obeying them within the proper bounds? Again, we see obedience, it's for our good. Or if you don't like police, all right, what about your progressive college professor? (laughs) Even the most progressive college professor, when they hand out a syllabus, guess what they expect from you? Disobey the police, but you darn well better obey my syllabus. Why? Supposedly, it's for your good. If you read the books, if you turn in the papers, um, you're gonna learn, right? You're gonna improve. So we owe our teacher obedience. Maybe the best example is a good parent. He's a good parent. Do my kids owe me obedience? Well, on a lot of levels, right? Number one, God says so, I guess. That's a big one. But number two, who's more invested in their lives? Who cares more? You know, Paul's having in these passages to do what parents have to do sometimes. Uh, I haven't got there yet, but supposedly every once in a while uh, when kids are in their teens or their college years, they might want to rebel a little. Have you heard of this? Evidently, occasionally, it occurs. And sometimes parents have to argue like the, the apostles having to argue. Should he have to argue for this church to trust him? No, he suffered. He went there to share the gospel with them. He lived with them. They saw his life. He's visited them. He should not have to argue that they should trust him. They know him. They know him. They know him so well, he shouldn't have to argue. And these people that they're trusting, they're not trustworthy. But still, it's awkward. Hey, really? Really? I lo- I'm the one who loves you guys. Don't your parents have to do this sometimes? But mom, I'm in love with him. You've known him for two weeks, but he loves me. No, I love you. Right? I changed your diapers. <laughs> I, why am I even? You don't love me. Why do we even have to have this conversation? Do we owe parents some obedience? Okay, so can you agree sometimes you owe somebody your obedience for your good? What do you owe the Christ? What do you owe the Christ? We saw a couple weeks ago when Thomas saw the risen Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. And that wraps up this word Christ. My Lord and my God. Number one, you're God, you're divine. This is the divine king, has the very essence and nature of God, he's one with the Father. What do you owe God? If you believe in God, what do, you, what do you owe him? Why are you alive? Why is your heart beating? Why are your lungs breathing? Why did you have food to eat? Why do you have anything that you have that keeps you going? It's all a gift from God. I'm reminded of this verse about Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter one about the Lord Jesus. Look at this with me, Hebrews 1. One, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by P.S., he's king. Number two, and through whom also he created the world. He's divine, he's the creator. Verse three. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a lot of epic stuff in there. We can't go through all of it, but did you notice at least a couple things about Jesus? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What do you uphold by the word of your power? I don't think I uphold anything by the word of my power. What does Jesus do with his word? It's just mind blowing. The galaxies are spinning, the stars are burning, the earth is turning. Things are working because Jesus says to them, Work. He's divine, He's God. What do you owe the one who made you and keeps you working? Obedience. Don't you? Don't you owe him obedience? Uh, what what kind of obedience? An external sort of sometimes obedience? Or an every thought captive obedience? Because he's the Christ. He's not only divine, God, creator, he's also the judge. Look at what Paul says in a sermon in Acts 17:31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, what's Jesus going to do on that day? He's going to judge the world. This is very sobering. Each one of us, before whom will we stand on that day? Before him. And the only one who ever lived a perfect life will have the right there to judge our lives and our thoughts. So if you get a head start on this, and now you know, right? Now you know, what should it mean for our lives now, the reality that Jesus is judge and we will stand before him? Hint, clue, tip. The word starts with O and ends with obedience, If you're ever gonna obey anyone, who should it be? This guy, the one who made you, the one who judges over all things, all people. But maybe the sweetest part of why we should obey Jesus is hinted out in verse one. Remember Paul said, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the what? Remember those two words? Meekness. What's meekness? Humble strength. Humble strength. I love how these two words go together. Meekness of Christ. Christ, right? Divine king, judge of everything, strong, powerful. What's stronger? And then what of Christ? Meekness. The strongest one ever is the most humble one ever. Read the Gospels. Watch him relate with the weakest of the weak, the poorest of the poor, those who've lost everything, those with every regret, And he's kind, he's gentle. Meekness and gentleness of Christ, he's loving. We know what Jesus did. He came, lived a perfect life for us, died on the cross for us for our lack of obedience. Isn't it amazing? The one we've offended, refused to obey, is the one who's taking upon himself the price of that offense. I won't obey you, we've said. And he says, I'll die for your disobedience. And in him, when you trust in him, you're free from all the condemnation of all the times you have never obeyed. Forgiven. Every morning, a new start to know his love, his acceptance. Could you obey somebody like that? Part of obeying is, I don't know if I can trust you I don't know if you deserve it, right? Can you trust Jesus? He's divine. Does he know stuff? Does he know what you're made for? Do you own obedience? He's the judge. He's righteous. Is he the right guy to obey? Three, he's loving. He's merciful. Can you trust his heart for you when you look at his life and his death? For you. That will give you courage to obey. Paul here seems to be bouncing off the words of the gospel of Matthew. Look what Jesus said in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Paul brings up the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Look what Jesus said in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Come to me, Jesus says, and who gets to come? All who are labor and heavy laden. You tired of carrying this thing yourself? Tired of being your own God, following all the courses of the world that burn you out? Are you tired of this? Come to me and I will give you what? Rest. And you know that word has the sense of refreshment in it. You like re- some refreshment? Revitalizes you, restores you. Doesn't the word refreshment kind of have the sense of bringing you back to the way it should be? You got tired, you got burnt out, but this heals you, makes you whole. Come to me, Jesus says, I will give you rest. And then the, the irony is, take my what upon you? Yoke. Now, I don't, how many of y'all put on yokes when you need some rest? Uh, it's not egg yolk. Um, it's the thing the cows wear to plow the field. That sounds like work. Does that sound like work? When you go on vacation, you're like, I'd like I just can't wait to strap on that yoke. Finally get some rest. It's not what you expect. But Jesus says when you buckle up with me, take my yoke upon you, right? Two, two parts, two places, Jesus and you tied up together. Take my yoke upon you, you'll learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And what he's saying here is I'm good to weak people. I'm good to those who can't make it. I, I'm tied up with you on this yoke so I can do the the heavy lifting and you just tag along here right next to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What do you think this means for obedience? We're scared to obey Jesus because we're afraid we'll miss out on the good life. We'll miss out on the revenge or the bitterness we owe. We'll miss out on the self-pity we enjoy so much. We'll miss out on the trappings of this world. So we uh, can't obey because I'm missing out on the good life. And Jesus is telling you, what's he telling you? Obeying me is the good life. This is the good life. This is what you were made for. This is what you're here for. Does looking at Jesus give you courage to obey? Look at him, look at him. He's divine, he's a king, he's God. We owe him everything, we owe him obedience. He knows what's good. He's the judge. We will have wanted to obey him. Best of all, he's the savior. He's loving, he's kind, he's humble, he's gentle, he's helpful. His heart towards you is is assistance to carry you and in obedience to him, you will find Rest and refreshment. So if we believe this, where are we heading next? Let's obey. Let's obey. To what level? Thoughts. Every thought captive. The next question here is then, well how do you do this practically? How do you do this practically? Uh, Interesting question. I had a friend once who lived in our apartment complex, and I did get around finally talking to him about the gospel and church. He said, I love God, I have a relationship with Jesus. He said, But my church, my church is the softball field. Raises the question what is church supposed to be like, for instance? So, you know, back up, what am I talking about? I'm talking about loving Jesus and obeying him. One sliver of life and how we obey him, I'm just using it for the illustration, is church. How do we know, okay, I wanna obey Jesus, how do we know what obedience looks like? How How do we know what it is? That guy's like, I worship Jesus by hitting home runs. Hey, that's good, by the way, if you play softball, worship Jesus by hitting home runs. I don't think that's what Jesus meant by church. How do I know that? How do I know? Yeah. How do I know what it means to love my neighbor? Sometimes we want to love people, we end up enabling horrible behavior. Is that love? How do we know what love is? I got to love myself, that's why I don't forgive anyone. Is that love? How do we know? Yeah, to learn to obey Jesus, you have to trust the apostle. The bottom line is God has told us what it looks like to obey Jesus. It's in the scriptures. That's how we know. It's trusting the apostle. And this is really the echo of this chapters 10 to 13 with what's happening in this letter. Paul is saying, I want you devoted to Jesus more than anything and the way you do that is to trust me because I'm Christ's apostle. He gave me authority to preach the gospel to you, and he's gonna show us why he's a legit apostle as we go through these chapters. He does the miracles of the apostle, that counts for something. Uh, Amazingly, he's suffered and he uses that as a proof that he's an apostle. In this passage, one of the ways we know he's an apostle is he says, my weapons actually work. My weapons actually work. And you're like, wait, what, weapons? Weapons? I thought we were talking about obedience. Well, we are. Let me show you. Look at verse four. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You might think, oh, see, this is why religion's a problem. Look, it's all violent, weapons, strongholds. Oh, but wait. What are the strongholds he's talking about? Look at verse five. We destroy, there's two things here. What's the first one? Arguments. And what's the second one? Lofty opinions. Hmm. We'll get there in a second, but notice verse four. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but what do they have? Divine power. So, so here's where you need to latch on for this. If you... Does anybody in here, do you want to obey, obey Jesus more? Okay, I do, I do. Do you need divine power for, to help? Don't try this alone, right? I, I, can't, I can't obey Jesus on my own strength. These weapons here have divine power. Another thing to show you I want to remind you of, you've heard about God's power before, right, with Paul? Look at Romans 1.16, Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Why? It's the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the news of who Jesus is and what he is and what he's done. I'm not ashamed of that at all. This is the power to actually change people. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who what believes, you trust this, you'll see God's power in your life. So as I'm, as I'm looking at 2 Corinthians 10 here, he says I have weapons that have divine power. You caught that? Divine power to help you obey. And we've also, we also know where Paul f- finds divine power. Where's divine power? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. So, so already I'm, I'm grabbing here, okay, I wanna obey better practically. How do I do this? One thing, I need God's power. God's power, his spirit with me. Another thing, the power of God is found in what? The gospel, the gospel. And then Paul's gonna say some teaching too. So let me try to summarize it for you. The power to obey is found in trusting the message of the gospel according to the scriptures. Trusting the message of the gospel according to the scriptures. You've got the weapon. So how do you wanna do it? You like video games? You want a big machine gun? It's a weapon issue. Or if you want to do biblical terms, Ephesians 6, what is the what's the word of God? Do you remember? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so now we're walking into our hearts, saying, I need to obey Jesus more. How do I do this? I need I need God's divine power. I need his weapon. What's his weapon? The gospel according to the scriptures with the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you loaded? Is your gun loaded? Is your sword sharp? Now what are we gonna go blow up? What are we gonna cut on? Back to what we saw. We destroy, verse five, we destroy what? Arguments. Okay, I wanna practically obey Jesus. Tip one, trusting the apostle, his weapons. Behind every disobedience is a faulty statement of faith. Soak that in. Behind every disobedience is a faulty statement of faith. You had a belief in there, an argument that you were trusting in. And that's why you didn't obey. The word Paul uses here is logismos. I'm no... you guys know more about Greek than I do, and you're like, we don't know any Greek, and yeah. Um, The reason I give you logismos, does it sound like anything? Logic, that's, that's the idea of this word. There's a logic, but it's contrary to the knowledge of God. So what's that say about the logic? It's stupid. If God is real and he's made the world, his word is true, then any argument contrary to that is Wrong, it's stupid, it's a faulty statement of faith and it's behind every one of our disobediences. Do you believe this? You need to spend some time with the Lord, you need, to, you need to get a notebook, you need to think about your last obedience, you know it was there and then you need to ask yourself what was the idea, the argument in my heart I was believing in in that moment? What was it? because there's an argument there. It's like a stronghold, if you like Lord of the Rings or something, there's a tower in the field. Um, There's a tower in your heart, the enemy has, according to this image, where you disobey. Um, And if you wanna obey Jesus, what do you need to do to that tower? You need to rip it down. And what is the tower? It's an argument. In your heart, it's a faulty statement of belief. So here's where I struggled to apply it. One reason I struggled to apply it is because there's a million ways you can apply it. So what are we gonna pick? Well, I'll try this one just because I've heard it a lot. Behind every disobedience is a faulty statement of faith. You ever heard this one? I don't go to church for two reasons. It's full of hypocrites and I'm a good person. You ever heard that one? Talk to someone about church and you will hear it. I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites and I'm a good person. Okay, what's the statement of faith underneath that argument? This first reason is I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. What's the question under that? Why should someone go to church? So the faulty statement of faith is I would go to church if there were no hypocrites there. That's what the person at least says they believe. I'd go to church if there was no hypocrites there. Hmm. Who gets to decide why you go to church? Who gets to decide? How would you know? Doesn't God tell us what church is for and why we go there? So behind the disobedience, oh, I don't go to church, why? Church is full of hypocrites. There's a statement of faith. I shouldn't go to church unless everybody there is perfect and nice to me all the time. Is that a true statement of faith? That's faulty. It's faulty, it's cracked, it's broken, it's not true. The second one, and I'm a good person. The human heart is genius at convincing itself that we're good. I can't resist this illustration that I've said too many times, I was at a party. I'm talking to this guy about church and about the gospel and his ex-wife is standing next to him. Now if anybody knows your sins, who is it? (laughs) It's your ex-wife. And he stood there telling me, oh I'm a good person, I don't need church. And I was actually able to look at her and she was honestly about like this. (laughs) Didn't even know what to say. Because evidence against his goodness was living and breathing right next to him. And he stared it in the face and said, I'm fine. If the human heart can do that, it can do anything. I'm a good person. That's a statement of faith. Good, there's a standard behind it. How do you know what's good or not? There must be a standard that's over all of us. Who writes the standard? Only God can write that standard. What's his definition of good? Oh, this is getting different. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hebrews 10, don't neglect meeting together at church. So by his statement of faith that he doesn't go to church because they're all hypocrites and he's a good person, he's showing that he's the hypocrite and not a good person because of his faulty idea that led him to disobedience. Do you see this? What is it for you? When you're bitter towards someone and you let it linger, what's the idea in your heart? I deserve to be bitter at them. They deserve my cold shoulder. It's right for me to feel this way. That's a statement of faith. Test it. With the gospel according to the word. What's the gospel tell you? What does your king tell you? Your king tells you hey, wait, I had a few reasons to be bitter at you. Right? I went to the cross for you, I forgave you of every sin. We don't do bitterness anymore. Trust my love for you, undeserved. Forgive that person. Forgive that person. That's taking every thought captive. Do you see? Arguments, arguments. You know you have to preach to yourself behind every self-pity, behind anxiety, behind um, anger. You have strongholds of arguments, faulty statements of faith. You're putting your faith in that are rebellious to King Jesus. And you've gotta take his word in a gospel-centered way and chop it down. Bow it to Christ. You remember Psalm 42, verse five? Look at what the author says here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? I love this. Who's he talking to? Himself. What does he see in himself? I'm cast down and I'm in in turmoil. Now what do we tend to do when we're cast down and in turmoil? We tend to just say, pass the ice cream because I'm cast down and in turmoil. We just respond to the feelings as if there's no other way. There's no way out. This is just the way it is. But now we wanna take every thought captive, to obey Jesus. And so the psalmist talking to himself, what does he say? Okay, I recognize these feelings. Hey self, why are we so cast down and so in turmoil? And then he gets up on his own pulpit in his own heart, And he preaches, and who's he preaching to? Himself, and what does he say? Hope in God. I will again praise him. He's going to come through for me. Somehow, some way, hope in God. He's preaching to his own thinking. Trusting the apostle, taking a gospel-centered understanding of God's word, and taking your thoughts, the stronghold of these faulty assumptions that are behind our disobedience and saying, bow to Jesus. Trust him. Second thing to do, there's another stronghold to fight. Paul said, we tear down every uh, logismos, reckoning, reasoning, argument. What was the second thing we tear down? You remember in verse 5? Every lofty opinion. In the ESV, it's lofty opinion. Another way to translate it would be pretension. You know what pretension is? Uh, English root of it, pretend. Pretend to be better than you are. You ever been ticked off at somebody because they're prideful and they pretend to be better than they really are? You ever been guilty of doing that yourself? But the idea here is pride. It's pride. So first of all, Paul says, behind our disobedience is a faulty argument. You put your faith in a statement that is not true. The second thing that's behind our disobedience is an attitude. An attitude of what? Pride. Pride. And if you add it up, it, it makes sense. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes you say, What do you say? No. What kind of pride does it take to look the creator God in the face and be like, hey, partner, I know better. I know better. What kind of pride does it take to look God in the face and say, sounds nice and all, totally unrealistic, Totally ridiculous. God, please send us your resignation letter. You really you really don't know how to tell me how to live. And you've been replaced by me. Behold the divine king of my life. My feelings it's absolutely ridiculous and preposterous, isn't it? Have you ever had feelings that didn't make any sense and then they changed real quick? Me too. You're gonna make those things king over your life? What kind of pride does it take to look God in the face and say no? It's epic. And yet what does each one of us have crawling around in there? Pride. And so Paul says, you wanna obey, number one, look at the arguments in your heart and your mind that you're believing in, they're faulty, they're not true, test them by God's word in the gospel. Number two, check your attitude, what do you need to do? You need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself. We need to humble ourselves. In, In the word obey, it's humility, isn't it? It's humility, where I bow my knee and say to someone else, even when I don't like it, even when I don't understand it, you're in charge and not me. And for a Christian, it's even if you cost me everything. You're in charge and not me, and I trust you. So what are these weapons for? Killing our pride. Killing our pride. That never feels good. It always hurts, but if you go through it and you come out of it, you find rest for your soul. So, as we think of these things, we shouldn't go out of here saying, on one hand I can have Jesus as king, or on the other hand, I'll just have no king. Because look at Romans six sixteen. Romans six sixteen, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the question for every action is not whether or not you have a king, right? What's the question? It's who's the king, and do they deserve to be the king? So if you're living for independence, can't that make you a slave? If you're living for status or what a certain group of people think about you, Doesn't that make you a slave? If you're living for self or for pride, you actually become a slave to your own desires. The question is who's the true king? Who's the good king? Who's my king? And we want to bow the knee to Jesus. And again, who's better to trust? He's divine, He's the judge. Not only that, he died for you. Here's where the cross can do it for us. What do you see in Jesus on the cross? I've disobeyed and it's ugly. But what else do you see? I'm loved. I'm loved. And when you see that, don't you find some courage to obey? So see who Jesus is deserves your obedience, trust the apostle. Trust God's word. Take it as your weapon to fight these sources of disobedience in your heart. You remember what they are? Faulty statements of faith and pride. As you apply the gospel and God's word to those, you take every thought captive and you take every feeling and say, I want it to please you, Lord Jesus. I want it to please you Boy, if we start fighting on that level of our thoughts, you guys, what could happen? What could happen? You think of the fruit of the Spirit here. I love how the whole Bible connects. Would you know more of peace if you took every thought captive to God's word in the gospel? So much more. Would you know more joy If you took every thought, every feeling, captive to God's word in the gospel, would you have more love? I mean, on and on. This is the way to obedience. So I'm going to pray. We're going to take up our offering, then we'll enjoy the Lord's supper together. But as we pray, hey, pray with me. Let's bow our knees to Jesus. Let's trust His word. Let's strive for obedience, let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we confess just millions and millions of uh, times we've disobeyed. And Lord, we're floored by the idea that you want obedience in our thoughts. Who can stand under this? So we thank you, Jesus, that you lived a perfect life for us and that your thoughts were perfect for us. And we can come before you, Lord God, forgiven and free. You've overlooked all those sins. We thank you for it. And we pray that you'd help us to take your word, take the truth of the gospel, and fight these faulty ideas and assumptions in our hearts. And Jesus, you'd be king. And that, Lord, you'd deflate our pride. We'd humble ourselves before you freely, knowing that in you we're loved. We're loved. We don't need any more pretensions. So work within us, Lord. Help us to love, to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.